0: So thank you all very much for for coming and thanks for the invitation to speak this evening. Um, I've been asked to talk on this topic, applied digital health, and um, what I've done is put a presentation together that talks about how it provides opportunities for better patient care. I think that will be self-evident from the uh, presentation that I make, but uh, perhaps more importantly for us at least, why it may assist better um, or more clinical um, research. Um, I'm Richard Hobbs, I'm a professor of primary care and head of department here at the University of Oxford. I'm a clinical scientist and my main interests are actually cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular research but I've always had an interest in better utilization of um, health data and uh, interventions that improve patient care as well as uh, beyond drugs. Uh, Hence uh, I think why I've been asked to give this talk this evening although um, methodologically I think there are all sorts of challenges. I'm going to touch on a few of them this evening. Um, about how you can utilize data in a way that's more reliable Um, and I think um, if you want to ask difficult questions that are methodological in nature then I shall immediately transfer that to the methodologists in the room who actually do a lot of the um, work in relation to how the department uses big data or um, routine data, um, and therefore are fully aware of the limitations and lengths you have to go to, to try and make it worth doing. Okay, that's um, really by way of introduction. And um, what I am also happy doing, once I've worked out how to change my slides, is um, taking questions during the session. So I think I've been asked to talk for an inordinate length of time, um, 40 minutes or so, so uh, but I'm quite happy if you want to interrupt me please do so because I think it'll uh, it'll break up the presentation as well. All you've got to do is raise a hand or shout. Okay so this is really what I'm going to um, talk about why one might invest in a presence in applied digital health and then I'm gonna talk about the research impact in those areas of how it might assist in relation to disease burden or predicting disease outbreak, how it can improve drug development, how it can assist in better disease prognosis and risk estimation. And that's a very important topic because for most major disorders, The biggest um, prognostic uh, indicator is the point at which it's diagnosed. So if you diagnosed important disease earlier, for many important diseases, that is the biggest, um, that's going to have the biggest impact on prognosis. Um, I'm also going to say a little bit about system change, um, behaviour change. Uh, We spend a lot of time thinking about how we can get patients to change behaviour. It's difficult, um, but important. But actually, increasingly, it's how you can get practitioners and health systems to change that's just as relevant. And I think there are examples where digital health can uh, provide that as well. And as I said, I, it's really all of the above in relation to healthcare impact. And as I say, that should be self-evident as I work through. So why has this become more possible? And it's simply the degree of digitation, digitisation of the clinical record has been particularly pronounced uh, in primary care and in fact uh, particularly advanced in the United Kingdom. So you you can actually see that that um, pre-2000 in fact most UK general practice was fully computerized and uh, what's happened uh, since then is that lots of health systems have caught up And it's this recognition that an awful lot of the clinical record is now held um, digitally that has meant that people have started thinking that can't that be utilized uh, more than it has been historically just in terms of the UK and primary care I'm I'm really only talking about primary care but you could imagine um, similar uh, examples could occur in, in specialist settings but in primary care The principal software provider that provides the architecture for primary care records is EMIS, they hold about 55% of the market. And the next biggest is TPP. And we've got relationships with both of these uh, commercial operations and indeed are looking at ways that we can increase our relationship with them with regard to co-investing in things that they want and we want then there may be opportunities for collaboration there. And it's already uh, impacts on clinical practice at least because um, the, what's, what's happened at an increasing trend is that the information is provided back to practitioners um, that g- can help guide them in terms of guideline recommendations, usually as a prompt. And of course, the difficulty of that is that there are now so many prompts within GP systems, it's a bit like guidelines. You'll have rooms full of guidelines. You'll now have patient consultations where you might get two or three prompts for every single consultation. What happens, GPs ignore them. And so thinking about how you can present information that's useful for (laughs) practice in a way that you could take it up, I think is is it of itself an, an interesting research challenge um, it's the sort of thing that Facebook and companies like that have transformed socia- the way we live our lives socially, the way we interact with shops, the way we bank. So in our social lives, there's been this massive revolution about the way um, digital applications have changed the way we behave. And really, what I think is going to happen over the next 10, 15 years is that degree of penetration into practice and the relationships patients have with health systems is going to go the same sort of way and one of the good things about Facebook is that they've demonstrated what the risks and problems associated with these sorts of mass changes in behaviour are and um, we should be thinking about how we can safely develop these systems that uh, maximise gain and minimise risk. And even if you think that it's been demonstrated that you can manipulate public voting through uh, mass um, online uh, campaigns. In some ways that's a good thing because if if you can do it for the way people vote, shouldn't we be thinking about things that have a desirable consequence in terms of the way people live their lives and living healthier lives and uh, accepting more evidence-based uh, interventions rather than uh, the sorts of interventions you'd see on the front page of the Daily Mail. So that's a challenge to us really as how we can canvas this change in the way um, people interact with themselves and each other through uh, digital uh, um, applications, I think is, is going to be quite exciting. So um, in terms of uh, UK practice, there is an awful lot of inflammation which is actually available within the clinical record uh, in relation to activity prescribing referral patterns this is a typical screen where you'll have uh, demographic and clinical information provided and increasingly um, you can actually link this uh, personal level clinical record electronic clinical record into other data sets and for the UK most notably they're going to be hospital activity data through HES or ons particularly for mortality data but also deprivation scores and um, you can even triangulate for disease registries etc so it's not just the single clinical record that one would want to be linking into it's other national data sets as well so for the rest of the talk i'm really just going to run through a few examples um, and uh, you you can then discuss whether you think that they're useful things to be doing or not at a later point So, retrospective clinical epidemiology, that probably is the thing that's been done the longest, that and pharmacoepidemiology, and probably digital clinical records have been used for about 20 years or so in those two areas, and it's just a more efficient way of doing things like epidemiological studies, which often used to rely on just physical uh, records being filled in on cohorts and then followed up for extended periods of time. The fact that you can actually start exploring this digitally, obviously, is hugely less time intensive. This is a US use. The US um, are coming to this late, but are investing huge uh, dollars, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, in their ability to mine health data in the future. And obviously, you've got the mega data giants, Google and Apple and um, and uh, Amazon are spending huge sums of money in what they see is going to be the next big digital transformation which uh, relates to health care. But this is just looking at Medicare and Medicaid. It's easier to use Medicare and Medicaid data because it's uh, a single registration, um, it's uh, universal care. So it's effectively the equivalent of the National Health Service but just for a small proportion of the US population. But uh, what they are able to do, looking at these data, is look at an outcome that you wouldn't want, which is an early 30-day readmission, i.e. you've been in hospital for something important, in this case it's stroke, and you've been discharged home. If you've had a, a stroke, what you don't want when you're discharged home is to have to go back into hospital within 30 days. That's a bad clinical outcome. There are usually issues that you can do that prevent that. And so what they've been able to do by mapping this is to look at the worst quartile, which is the bits in dark there of the US (laughs) that have the worst rates of readmission. And what you could imagine you might do with that then is think about preventative programs that are focused. What order do you put your initiatives in could be dictated by clinical need. Another uh, important thing that has come from retrospective epidemiology are the observations that Multimorbidity morbidity have become um, the norm in uh, most uh, developed health systems, i.e. that patients don't have single disorders anymore but they have multiple disorders. I don't touch that anymore in case it starts flicking around. So this is just looking at people with diabetes and showing that only under 20% of them, this is Scottish data used in primary care, uh, it's all the primary care records in, in Scotland, and it's showing that uh, only under 20% of patients only have diabetes. And uh, if you look at people under 65, then the mean number of additional conditions is about three, and over 65, it's six and a half other conditions. And so what you can imagine from that is why it's important to think about how interventions may uh, interact negatively or positively in relation to different sorts of conditions. and uh, you you start to get a feel for why the evidence base needs to be less uni disease focus Um, and i think it's only through having large uh, digitized records that these sort of observations can occur what we're quite interested in though at the moment it's all been about talking about multimorbidity, counting it viewing it as a big issue there's very little original research around how that may impact on healthcare but you could immediately begin to think that is it the way they cluster or is it the order that you get diseases in or is it a disease exposure issue Um, and those are sorts of questions that you might pose of uh, a routine data set and come up with some uh, preliminary questions about that then might guide you to think about an intervention That you could try to see if it altered trajectory compared to a comparator population so that's that's the classic use of routine data sets and still quite important because that last one i think you can immediately think about how it could guide you into hypothesis testing in an efficient way that may come up with some empirical subsequent testing but another important area is disease surveillance and again this might be more practical from a health system point of view but you could imagine how it might impact on a research program and for that I'm showing data from the RCGP Royal College of GPs research um, surveillance uh, center research and surveillance center which has recently moved to Oxford and what that currently do is it provides the best early warning service to the National Health Service about rising rates of um, of influenza and it uses sentinel practices for that so it's general practices that get a little bit of additional money to, to record things more than in routine practice that is collected twice weekly this is just looking at time of year showing that most flu unsurprisingly is in the first part of the year but occasionally you'll get spikes out of sequence. And the other thing that they can do because they actually collect serology in these practice, which again is not done routinely, is look at what influenza subtype it is, which helps to guide how the NHS orders the um, antibody um, that goes into the flu immunizations it uh, ultimately does. But what we're quite interested in doing is thinking that couldn't you start mapping disease burden better at uh, local and at a regional level using these sorts of surveillance systems that might uh, give the uh, NHS more um, granularity about what may become big burden problems or what may predict a surge in requirements for acute admission in advance of it occurring because at the moment the NHS tends to be very responsive it can't really predict where demand is going to occur and at what time and you might be able to develop intelligent systems around those sorts of um, service issues. So another area which has historically has been used for for pharmacovigilance so a drug's introduced, you can monitor its safety subsequently once it starts being used in clinical practice but I think that that's been extended now to think that because the data are more complete and more reliable, could it actually start to substitute for what has historically been the way that drug development has occurred, which is through the randomized controlled trial. And what I've done here is I've plotted the RELY trial, which is looking at a uh, direct oral anticoagulant, so an alternative to warfarin. That was on the bottom there, the pivotal trial that resulted in uh, dabigatran the first of these new warfarin drugs, if you like, these anticoagulants um, that was a pivotal trial against warfarin and showing um, the benefits in terms of reduced rates uh, of mortality and less ischemic stroke and particularly bleeding into the brain with some of the uh, downside, which is that where there was more GI bleeding than warfarin so some of the upside some of the downside and uh, the top one looks basically at its use in clinical practice much larger data set so that's looking at exposure in hundreds of thousands of people this was a huge RCT but it was around 20,000 people these are tens of thousands of people um, up the top there in routine data use and it basically is identical results and that's very reassuring because it's triangulating what may be a more select population in a clinical trial in a more routine setting and the drug regulators are now wanting real world data to complement the RCT data. This is looking at comparison between the other Um, direct oral anticoagulants in fact there's been a, a fourth one now but it gives you an idea of the fact that basically all of them are at least as safe in terms of bleeding as warfarin and perhaps some of them are a bit safer but of course there's going to be all sorts of bias in that because the reason why people prescribe a particular drug to a particular patient may result in some spectrum bias in the observation But if you think that the clinical perception out there is that this is the safest when it comes to bleeding that's what physicians think rightly or wrongly then you might hypothesize that actually these patients are more likely to be higher bleed risk because it's perceived as a safer one. So the fact that it actually comes out despite that that probable um, spectrum bias as less bleeding I think is, is reassuring. So it's still observational data, it's still going to caveat it, but it would provide quite a lot of re- reassurance to practitioners. And that, those last two were US data. This is UK data, it's actually based on key research, um, showing essentially the same thing. And I think in medicine, when you observe what you anticipate, um, then uh, that's very reassuring. So on the bottom here, river Oxaben, as you saw on that first side um, is likely to cause more gastric bleeding in the RCT put it into general population and yes it does look as if it causes uh, a bit more GI bleeding than uh, warfarin and a it less so. So again uh, triangulates um, data from randomized controlled trials but that I think is, is how it's been used historically and I think that the potential for routine data is that you could actually start doing things that currently aren't done and two areas of drug development that it may be useful for is looking at subgroup, sub-populations where it's much more difficult potentially to do a randomized controlled trial or even having a much uh, lower cost way of looking at new indications and I'm going to show you a few examples now. <coughs> so one of them is metformin which is a drug that's used in diabetes and was contraindicated for use in heart failure because there was a low risk of uh, a serious complication lactic acidosis but in fact when um, the FDA the um, regulators in the US looked at all the observational data in relation to people who, for whatever reason, had been put on metformin, even though they weren't supposed to be. In fact, the uh, data were very reassuring with all of the studies showing, if anything, safety. And as a consequence, in the end of what was observational data, the FDA removed that um, risk label. You'd never do a randomized controlled trial of that sort of uh, indication where you were concerned about risk in the population. Here's another one where, uh, in fact, is the traditional use where you do a clinical trial of various drugs used uh, to treat hypertension, used in combination at a low level and uh, resulted in a non-inferiority of a more intensive regime against a less intensive regime And then subsequent to that, a group actually mimicked the trial in routine data sets because all of these drugs are routinely available and therefore a lot of prescriptions occur in clinical practice and showed essentially the same result. And this trial would uh, have cost about $300 million and that study cost about $4 million. So you can start to see why people think efficient study design might be more possible with digital record studies and here's another one which is the other way round which is that this study had been uh, announced which is looking at a diabetes drug and uh, the observation that these drugs which are used for diabetes might actually be useful in heart failure as well in terms of reducing hospitalization and uh, that uh, observation came out of Observational studies showing uh, a hazard ratio of um, six, so uh, 40% improvement in terms of hospitalisation for heart failure, and the observational data was sufficient to actually get an RCT done to get a formal indication, almost identical result, but obviously hugely more expensive to do the randomized controlled trial. Now, one has to say, though, there are risks with the way you do this data because methodologically there are all sorts of challenges that you're going to do. And this is an interesting one because basically what this group did is looked at um, a restrictive analysis of routine data to compare of how pravastatin um, performed in randomised controlled trials in terms of the amount of um, mortality, cardiovascular mortality, that was reduced by being on pravastatin. And when they just did the simplest type of comparison, which is looking at everybody who was on pravastatin versus people who weren't, then you've got this huge difference between observed or actual trial results and what was observed in the routine data set. But as they did more restrictive analyses, doing things like only looking at people who were new-onset pravastatin rather than prevalent, looking at active comparators, looking at comparators where they started to standardize the patients to be more similar, then each incremental step they did resulted in a result uh, that was much closer to that observed in the randomized trial. So it, this demonstrates why you need to think methodologically about how you approach these questions. And here's another example. There was a a group that published the CVD real data set which again looked at a type of anti-diabetic drug, SGLT2 inhibitors, which appeared to have this huge effect on vascular mortality with a 50% reduction based on the big data studies. But actually, the this was actually demonstrated in a trial it's lost the plot sorry but but you can see in the clinical trial it was only a 13% risk reduction still a worthwhile risk reduction but nothing like the 50% and why did they make the mistake in the CVD real, real group and they did another uh, basic error in terms of how you would uh, look at safety in a trial um, the immortal time bias effect because what they were doing is looking at people who were randomized to either an SGLT2-1 or an other oral glucose lowering drug, and then looking for outcomes, which was like could have death or a vascular event. But th- so if you were on an alternative or SGLT2, then that's a reasonable comparison but there would have been other people who were in this group who were on an old drug but were randomized or, or given in clinical practice an SGLT2 1 inhibitor. And how are you going to count those events where, for that bottom group, if that individual died, it counts in the analysis? But in this group, if they don't die because they live to be able to go into another drug then that survival will be attributed to the SGLT2 drug in the analysis is what the mistake they made rather than attributing some of that survival to the older drug as well. So you've you've got to think about these things if you're going to use the um, databases sensibly. So another area which is going to be a big growth area in medicine because it's about trying to predict risk coming to validated risk scores. And I've just used for an examples there, all of the ones generated from the Q Research database. There are lots of other risk scores that are used internationally from other databases, but it, it gives you a flavor of how you could use a large data set and actually look at, uh, at factors that are independently associated with outcomes that you can then end up with a weighted composite score. And indeed, the Risk 3 calculator is currently used by the National Health Service as its mandated risk score for predicting the 10-year risk of somebody developing vascular event and then using that to determine whether you should treat them with a statin or not. But the other thing that you can do with these sorts of data, so you're using it in that in a clinical threshold setting, is think about the way you present risk to people. Um, So in this instance, a 10 year Q risk score of 21% means that um, you've got a 21% likelihood of having an event within a 10 year cycle across the population. But that means that that individual has got a relative risk compared to other people of a similar age and similar gender of nearly fourfold or you can calculate that into a lifetime risk of um, 74, i.e. this 55-year-old is on a population basis, on average is going to be more like a 74-year-old in terms of their outcomes. And so that immediately then throws up how you present risk may be quite important to helping people understand their personal risk and then making decisions about what they do about that perceived risk you've also got all of these issues, is that this is all based upon mean population effects and you're attributing that to an individual which may obviously underestimate the risk in some individuals or overestimate the risk in some individuals because you're just looking at a mean effect. So what we're quite interested in looking at, can you supplement these scores, perhaps with biomarkers that may produce a more predictive individualized uh, risk. So another area that we're pretty keen on which is part of this behavior change is can you provide contextual information back to practitioners in this instance that helps them change behavior. So this is what the RCGP currently provides back in relation to flu and it's producing all sorts of pieces of information about how this practice compares with the mean practice and talks about how much money they're losing. But it's obviously is a pretty complex slide and it does change behaviour but you'd have to look at that in a practice meeting probably and think digest it and think about the implications of your practice and then you might do something about it. Um, But it's certainly not something that you're going to look at during a consultation to change your behaviour. Another thing that we've done in terms of routine data is is look at workload. It it may be hard to believe but uh, since 1948 when the NHS was formed there was only one analysis, objective analysis of GP workload and that just looked at the numbers of consultations. So there was no other objective evidence and yet we had this huge concern in British general practice that they were under huge pressure and they were buckling under the workload increases and yet the NHS had, uh, you know, they didn't know whether it was just perceptions of working harder or actual working harder and we managed to, using routine data, look at a seven-year period, 2014 Um, sorry, 27 to 2014, and showed that objectively during that uh, period there was this really remarkably consistent increase, annual increase in consultations of 16%, which um, were associated also with an increased length of consultation. So they weren't just seeing patients more, they were actually spending more on each average consultation and they were doing things to try and reduce the burden, like increasing the number of telephone consultations. So I think the good thing about these data is it, it really did demonstrate that they, their perceptions were borne out by reality and did actually change NHS England uh, view to this in what they then committed to and to try to increase the number of practitioners in the UK. We've had a number of follow-on um, studies for that and we're still trying to um, look at issues like complexity. Can you actually weight workload by complexity of disorders that they're looking after within the population? Now, this is uh, another big data project that's emerged from, from the department here in Oxford, which it relates to open prescribing. Um, actually, it's.net, not com. Um, but what this is doing is using a different data set. This is looking at the prescription pricing authority which previously was sent manually to CCGs and then a pharmacist would pour over it, all these tables that were done and look at the differences between practices and then would target practices to go into and say what they should be doing differently to try and save the NHS money. But what using big data techniques, this group has done led by Ben Goldacre is to provide all of this online real time so that you can immediately start to focus on any particular comparison at this it's looking at basically the generic prescribing of a progesterone um, drug um, rather than proprietary prescribing and it divvies up all the ccgs by those that are doing a lot of the non-generic prescribing which is you're not supposed to do that sort of thing but they can also do some time trend stuff which is quite interesting because the NHS every now and then tries to stop things. So it will have a campaign. The CCG will try and stop GPs using the proprietary Doug. And you can actually look at whether there are interventions that they did that are then associated with the change in activity. So the blue is basically the national uh, trend. And then the red is looking at individual CCGs. So here's one that dropped had more desirable practice much more quickly and you'd postulate did they do something then that resulted in this sudden and very rapid change and here's one where they didn't do anything and then obviously they did something that resulted in here but that is sort of three years difference and so you could imagine now that you could think about a CCG intervention and test it in a, a cheap way of following up whether there's been desirable trend and the group are actually now looking at, um, at the use of um, prompts where practices are actually asking um, for this information when their prescribing is starting to change out of what they'd expect it to. The final area where I think is going to be a big uh, change in terms of routine data relates to pragmatic trial platforms and I think that that should have been self-evident from what I was talking about in real world studies that are looking at retrospective use but potentially you could actually randomize people and do most of their phenotypic follow-up that's the expensive bit of trials is following up patient to capture all of the clinical information then you could imagine that you might be able to start doing these things prospectively and uh, one example for example, it might be that you could look at these drugs again. These are a the diabetic drug, but do look as if they may be positive when it comes to vascular risk reduction. This trial will never happen. Nobody is going to to do a pivotal primary prevention study because the cost of it is just too great. But it's a really important question, and potentially you could get um, a reliable answer to it. Um, through using routine data sets. Okay, now, although that's all I want to talk about in terms of data, I think it is uh, worth me just closing by saying that there are things that we could uh, be thinking about also in terms of kit, of things that link to data. Uh, And one example is things that measure, devices that measure things, and one good example that that we've been working on uh, could be in relation to blood pressure management. And what we postulated was that there was quite good evidence to show that self-monitoring Sorry, it's really slow when I change it. That self-monitoring actually does have an appreciable effect on blood pressure with about a 4 over 1.5 reduction of uh, blood pressure in patients that self-monitor compared to uh, people who are randomized to non-intervention. And that's a worthwhile clinical difference. And we postulated that rather than just self-monitoring, if you provided patients with an algorithm to allow them to actually change their treatment, so they monitored and self-managed, that that might be a desirable thing. And in fact, you had a big treatment effect Very similar to the self-monitoring, but it's on top of self-monitoring and it actually was a bigger treatment effect at 12 months. So it persisted um, even after the original trial intervention. And if you think that doesn't sound very much, five millimetres of mercury, then (laughs) looking at epidemiology, you can predict that it will have actually quite a significant effect on outcomes. The trouble is you'd have to do follow-up of these cohorts for 15 to 20 years before you could demonstrate that. But of course within the data set you could do that length of follow-up but you're not going to wait 20 years before you think an intervention is worth doing if there are surrogate markers and blood pressure is a very good surrogate marker of clinical outcomes uh, we've also done some work in uh, more challenging settings so this is in south africa in townships looking at weather prompts using simple um, messaging on smartphones actually results in desirable change amongst the group that um, often are even more lacking in concordance with medication than in in the UK. And the one thing that is quite good about the world today is that even in really poor settings, everybody's got a smartphone. I don't know how they pay their, I think they're all given free, the roaming, they don't get roaming charges. But it does mean you can think about digital interventions, even in poor settings, and did that make a difference? Yes, it may have been only two millimetres of mercury difference in the intervention of prompted intervention arm, but that, as I already demonstrated, is a worthwhile intervention, and that was associated, presumably, with the fact that 25% more adherence to treatment within that group. And I think... When you think about the future in relation to wearables, different devices linking into the clinical record, then clearly there are gonna be a lot of opportunities for more active research downstream. So I think hopefully you'll agree that uh, uh, there are all sorts of exciting new things we can think about in relation to the use of big data and the linkage of data and uh, information in the clinical record. And that already there have been some worthwhile research examples that would encourage you in that and uh, we currently practice from that building which is the renovated outpatient building on the roq site and we're sufficiently convinced about this is that we are hopefully going to be investing or getting funding to invest in a new building which will probably be about that sort of size for the rest of the department That's the current building, um, which will be largely around big investment in applied digital health. So watch this space and look out for future employment opportunities. Thank you very much.